You can turn to Hebrews chapter 10 for our New Testament reading and the sermon this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 35. If you have the Pew Bible, that is on page 1007. Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 19. Again, please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when... After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, may we have ears to hear this morning what you have to say to us. God, open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to receive from your word, God, and to to do what it says, uh, to be transformed by the power of your spirit through your word working in us. May that be true of your people this day. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, what does confidence look like? Specifically for the Christian, how should we think about confidence? I think Hebrews has been a great book for us to look at a lot of uh, different topics. So we've talked about, we talked about perfection last week, uh, talking this week about confidence. And one way that we can think about it is to obviously to contrast with what the world 
tells us about confidence? How does the world talk about confidence? And where is confidence centered for the message that the world is giving us? It's, it's in the self, right? Become a better you. Believe in yourself. Uh, we see in athletics and entertainment, obviously, if you want to be a top level pro athlete, you got to have a little bit of like, hey, I'm pretty good, right? Like, you got to have confidence in your ability and the work that you put in. Same thing in entertainment. So there is a level of, okay, that's like understandable that there is this reality that you got to like believe in, in what you can do if you're performing at a high level. But the question then is, what or who ought to be the object of our confidence? Or I can maybe ask in a more snarky way, how is this whole self-confidence thing working for us? If I have like a, a big idea, if you're taking notes, kind of a, what's the main point here? It's that we must reject the world's definition of confidence because Christian confidence is upside down compared to the world's standards. So we must reject the world's definition of confidence because Christian confidence is upside down compared to the world's standards. This has really been the thrust of the entire letter of Hebrews so far. Jesus is better, right? And we keep hammering this home from the very beginning. He's better than the revelation from the prophets in the Old Testament. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priesthood. He's better than the old covenant. And if we are to be confident of anything, it's because of what Jesus has done. We've seen in Hebrews the insufficiency of these external things, of these external things to purify us, to make us right before God. And then we've also seen the insufficiency of the internal things, right? We can't do this on our own. We need something externally sufficient to make us internally sufficient. That's been the constant drumbeat of Hebrews. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time, if you haven't, if you're visiting for the first time or you, you haven't been around, um, we, last week we were in he, Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 18, the first half of this chapter. Uh, this is really important context for kind of where we're going today. We looked at the fact that there is bad news and there is good news regarding perfection. Look back at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Talking here about the law, uh, the sacrifices in the Old Testament says they can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year. So it's talking about the Day of Atonement. These sacrifices can never make perfect those who draw near. So this bad news that we saw last week is that we cannot be perfected by the sacrifice, the sacrificial system and the sacrifices. The good news is contrasted in verse 14. Look down there. For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the bad news is that this repeated Old Testament sacrificial system offering on the Day of Atonement couldn't perfect the worshipers. But Jesus by his single offering, has perfected us so that we can draw near to God. We also saw this language of, of reminder and remembrance. In verse 3, it's talking about the sacrifices, it says, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So again, the insufficiency of that whole system was right in front of their faces year after year, right? As they watched the high priest 
go into the Holy of Holies and make that sacrifice year in and year out. There was this reminder that there's this separation between the people and God. But then look down in verses 17 and 18. Speaking of the promises of the new covenant, there was a reminder of sins. But then God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So because of Jesus and what he has done through his sacrifice, God says, I will not remember your sins anymore, even though there was that reminder year after year. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. It is finished, right? Jesus has once and for all paid the sacrifice, paid the price for our sins. This is the good news of the gospel. And in light of these realities that we saw in that first half of the chapter, we're encouraged now to live the Christian life with confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus, our great high priest. So this whole passage here, if you are wondering, well, why did you, it's obvious, you know, if you look at your Bible, it's obvious to start in verse 19 there. There's a nice break, but you're probably looking like, why did you stop right in verse 35 in the middle of this, you know, paragraph? And I think the answer is obvious because there is this, our author bookends his argument here, starting off talking about confidence in verse 19, and then he ends it again talking about confidence in verse 35. And then we'll I'll make my argument next week for why I'm starting in verse 36 and going into uh, chapter 11 as we kind of look at the hall of faith. But so we're, we're kind of bookending this text today with this idea of confidence. So how are we to live in light of our confidence in Christ. Look with me at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, see your footnote in the ESV, brothers and sisters, ladies, you are not excluded from this exhortation here. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Okay, so his, he's going to make this argument. Therefore, and there's going to be two senses, okay? Since A, First, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened through the curtain of his flesh. Now, this should be obvious now what Jesus has done. He has opened up this new way for us. He has done what the Old Testament high priests and the sacrificial system couldn't do. We've seen this being hammered over and over for the last five or six chapters. And it says that he opened up this way through the curtain. Now, this curtain idea has been spoken of a couple times already in Hebrews. It's the same curtain that is mentioned in the Gospels that was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross, right? Symbolizing that this wasn't, you know, this group of people who ran in and cut a slit in this curtain and, and like ripped it from the bottom to the top. It was this massive curtain that they wouldn't have been able to reach. And God tore that curtain from the top to the bottom, showing that now there is access into God's presence for God's people those barriers the barriers that kept the kept us away from god they have now been removed by jesus and by him alone so that's the first sense since we have confidence to enter in because of what jesus has done because he has broken down that barrier so that's since a and since b which we see in verse 21 since we have a great priest over the house of god Jesus, as the Son of God, is the priest over the house of God. And we've been seeing this theme all throughout Hebrews, even going back to beginning in chapter 1, that God spoke through him. In chapter 2, that God has placed all things in subjection 
under his feet, there has been this theme that Jesus is king, that Jesus reigns and rules over the household of God. Jesus is not a servant in the house who is subject to the master in the same way that earthly servants are, but he is the master of the house, and we must answer to him. So having established then these truths as the grounds for our confidence, our author now encourages us to live out our faith in three specific ways in verses 22 through 25. And we must get this order straight here as we think through these things. First, we are confronted with who is God and what has he done for us? And then next, how should we live our lives? So there always is this vertical element, which we must recognize first, right? Our relationship with God. And then we think on that horizontal plane. How does this influence the way that we live among other people? And how does that impact us? I was thinking about some of these truths specifically this week. Friday was April Fool's Day. And this is not a joke. Uh, Friday was my 22-year spiritual birthday. On April Fool's Day 2000, uh, in Whitehall at UW-La Crosse, uh, a guy named Tom Weemy, who some of you met a couple years ago at my birthday party. Thank you, Lindsay, for surprising me and giving me a heart attack uh, by flying Tom up to jump out of a box in our backyard and surprise me. But uh, Tom stepped out in faith and shared the gospel with me. And I remember he was going through the Four Spiritual Laws booklet with me that Campus Crusade likes to use. And he got to the little diagram about, you know, like who's on the throne of your life. And uh, let's just say my life was uh, pretty out of control at that point. And as he shared that diagram with me, like asking me, like, is Jesus on the throne of your life or are you on the throne of your life? It was like, yeah, pretty obvious that I was trying to be on the throne of my life. And I needed a massive reorientation in my life. I needed to answer that question, who is in control? And I needed to get things straight. And as I think about it, this is not just some truths that I needed to hear as a 19-year-old punk kid. Uh, these are truths that I still need to hear and still need to remember today. As I wrote in my journal on Friday morning and reflected on the last 22 years, I simply thanked God for my confidence then and my confidence now that it's in the blood of Jesus, that it's in him whose body was broken for me, who laid down his life for me as my great high priest. But I don't, don't, I don't just sit on my hands, right? Acknowledging that and saying, oh yeah, that's nice. Like a long time ago, I made this decision and my life was changed. So I don't just sit on my hands now and you can't sit on your hands now either. We must daily continually acknowledge Jesus' rule and his reign in our world and in our lives, and then we must go out and live like it's true. That's that vertical element first, right? We get right with God, and we, we continually acknowledge that we're right with God, not on our own. We don't start with the horizontal. We don't start with like, hey, I've been doing pretty good, right? I've been loving other people. I've been going to church and fellowshipping with others, which we're going to get to, right, in a little bit here. Those aren't the things that make that vertical relationship good, right? Our vertical relationship with God is because of his faithfulness, because he continues year in, year out, day in, day out to bear with us, right? To be patient with us when we're knuckleheads and when we don't live out the truths that we claim to believe. 
So this is what verses 22 through 25 are all about. What is then the call of the Christian? Let's look at these three things that we see, these three let us statements beginning in verse 22. First, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice the emphasis here. What does the author say? Let us. He doesn't say, hey, you guys, you better get your act together, right? He's not saying you are the problem here. He's including himself. He isn't above them. He might be their pastor or someone in authority in the church, but he doesn't pretend that he is beyond this exhortation that he is about to give them. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We've seen this encouragement throughout Hebrews to draw near to God. And we can draw near to God because the curtain has been torn, because Jesus has made a way. So the encouragement here is don't stand on the outside when you are free to come in. Don't wait and say, well, what do I, what do I got to do, right? Like, yeah, it's been a bad week or a bad month. I haven't really been walking with the Lord. Like, what do I got to do to come in? He says, nothing, just come in, right? Like, God's going to deal with you once, you once you get in there. Like, don't stand on the outside saying, I got to do something. I got to get my act together. Come in and come boldly. Notice the imagery here. Hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. This is talking about that inner life. Right? We, we saw in chapter 9 that our consciences couldn't be cleansed by the Old Testament sacrifices, but now they are cleansed because of Jesus. So come with clean consciences. And then bodies washed with pure water. This is probably here a reference to baptism. So there's that internal reference to cleansing, and then there's that outward reference that you've, you've been cleansed. You've had that symbol of the covenant placed upon you that that tells the world that you no longer belong to it but you belong to christ the author probably has ezekiel chapter 36 in mind which we james just read for us a little bit ago listen again to what the lord promises to his people ezekiel 36 beginning verse 25 i will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So there's this potentially outward, maybe and inward emphasis there. Then what does he say? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice that God is the one who initiates this inward change that then leads to the outward display of that change taking effect. Well, so what does this first exhortation practically look like in our lives then? What does it look like to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith? It's to come clean, okay? Now, I mean this in two ways, come clean. The first, in terms of the verbal sense, right? Come clean, meaning tell the truth, right? Confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to one another. Stop trying to hide 
from God when you know that you can't hide anyways, right? Come clean. The second way that we can come clean, I'm using clean as an adjective here. Come clean. Come because you are clean, right? Come to God because he has cleansed you in Christ. Jesus has perfected you for all time, as we saw in verse 14, by his single sacrifice. So come as one who is clean. This doesn't mean that you're not going to sin anymore, but it means there is forgiveness because of the blood of Jesus and that we can stand firm upon that promise. Which leads us now into our second exhortation. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Now, as much as we love talking about creeds and confessions around here, this is not what this means when it says to hold fast to our confession. It doesn't mean that James, as he's preparing for his ordination exams in a few weeks, and he's walking around with his Westminster confession of faith everywhere he goes. It doesn't mean James hold fast to your Westminster confession so that you can pass your exams, right? Our confession is our testimony to the world that our allegiance is not to this world, but it is to Jesus. And when everything around us seems to be crashing down and there are temptations to waver, when those temptations are strong, we are reminded that we are not the strong ones here. We are not meant here as we think of this, what does this look like? In verse 23, holding fast without wavering, we are not meant to picture ourselves as a bunch of individual Christians as these oak trees that are all planted firm, right? That don't bend or waver in the midst of a huge windstorm. It's not us ourselves. If we're honest with ourselves, we are more like reeds that are just blowing all over the place in the wind, right? Just a huge mess. But what does the second half of verse 23 say for he who promised is faithful we're not unwavering because we are so strong we're not unwavering because of anything that we can do we are unwavering we're not bending to one side or the other because of jesus because he is faithful to hold us and to keep us you and i are like branches that are firmly attached to christ He is the giant, unwavering oak tree. And we are not going down in the midst of the storm because Jesus is not going down. Amen? The third exhortation then now, which really has the horizontal implications. Verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This word here in the original language for stir one another up, the word for stir, is a very strong word. Other places in the New Testament, it's translated as provoke. Literally here it's saying, you need to get up in each other's business, okay? You need to be about getting up in each other's business, stirring one another up, like, hey, how you doing? Not how's the weather, not, you know, what did you do last weekend? Like, those are okay conversations, but how's your heart, right? Like, how are you doing? How is your walk with the Lord? Stirring one another up. And you cannot do that if you are isolating yourself. 
You can't be encouraging one another toward love and good works if you're not meeting together. Now, obviously, you've been around here very long. You hear us say this all the time. You need to, if you're a part of this church, you need to make Sunday morning a priority. This, you need to be here, not because you're coming to listen to me or anybody else preach. You're here because this is where God is going to minister to you most effectively through his word, through the sacraments, through the fellowship of the believers. That's how we most often apply these verses, and I think most rightly. But also, I think it does extend, right, not neglecting to meet together. It extends beyond here. Right? It extends to our community groups. It extends to our men's and women's times. It extends to our, our meal after the service once a month. It extends to looking for opportunities to be in each other's homes, to encourage each other, to hang out with each other, to go and paint people's houses when they're about to move in, to unload boxes when they're moving in. Right? These are, this is the way that we encourage one another. It's easy to make excuses, but there are no excuses for this. Let me give you an example. On Thursday morning, I love, I love the Lord's timing in all of this. On Thursday morning, uh, I was on my way to Appleton early to play racquetball with my brother. And I got a, a couple messages from a pastor in China who I worked with very closely when we lived there. Uh, pastor Caleb is his English name. Uh, amazing story. He actually grew up right across from the border from North Korea. He's actually, he's actually from a Korean people group. Uh, grew up speaking Korean, so Mandarin is his second language, as it is mine, which is probably why we get along so well, because it's both of our second language, but uh, we've messaged just briefly here and there. Uh, I haven't talked to him for over two years, so I didn't really know what was going on with his church, with uh, COVID stuff in China, and all these different things that have been going on, a lot of people getting getting kicked out, but so I got a message from him, and then I called him a, a couple hours later, and we talked for a while, and uh, had a great conversation. And, and after we talked, I was like, whoa, like I'm, I'm preparing through this passage. I'm like, there's so much in this passage that applies to their situation. So I texted him again. I was like, hey, can you, you know, can, can we talk about these verses? And so I called him again on Friday night and we talked for almost an hour, just talking through this passage. And, and so here's, here's just some of the things I want to, I want to share with you. And I want to encourage you from that conversation. So what happened for them in October of 2020, uh, their, their fellowship got busted. The cops came in and busted them. Uh, him and four others got arrested. Uh, I'll, t- I'll talk about that in a little bit. But now, uh, so they're, they're basically told, you cannot meet in person any longer. They've been meeting on Zoom three times a month since October of 2020. Uh, and he said the cops are like always trying to shut their meetings down. So they'll be like in the middle of a meeting and it'll just like turn off sometimes. Um, but then once a month, what they do is they will travel outside of the city. There are these like basically these like country kind of hotel places. We don't really have anything like it in America. So I don't even know how to explain it, but it's basically like this. It's kind of like an outdoor uh, kind of there's a hotel with like rooms. I guess it would look like a motel where you like drive up and you go to these like individual rooms. But it's it, you got that. And then there's like a restaurant and there's all these things to do. So what they've been doing once a month is they're traveling to these random places, right? So they can avoid the police and, and be all together. And he talked about like, this is really, it's a financial hardship for, for their church. It's a financial hardship for some of their people to travel. Um, but they've been doing it despite the cost being, it being cost prohibitive, prohibitive, despite the security risks, they are really valuing, valuing this once a month time where they can be together 
because obviously we know, right, like doing Zoom just doesn't cut it. They don't really have any other options right now, but once a month they're traveling and being together face-to-face, face-to-face. And I asked him, like, if you have a word for our congregation, if you have any encouragement, what is it? And he said, value your time together, okay? Value your time together because you don't know how much longer you will have that time. You don't know how long that time will last. And there is an urgency that they experience and that they feel to gather together. And I think we see that urgency here in our text at the end of verse 25. All the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, just because we're not like being persecuted by our government and on the run, doesn't mean there's any less urgency for us, right? The day is drawing near. Christ is going to return. We need to have that urgency to gather together to be with God's people. He could come at any moment. So the question is, are we ready? And are we, or do we have this sense of urgency to be together? I think one way to tell is, are we living out these realities in verses 24 and 25? Now, this isn't a guilt trip here. I'm not trying to say like, you need to get in church, right? Like this isn't a guilt trip. This is the reality of the Christian life. I used the analogy last week of a plant that needs to be rooted. It needs water. It needs sunlight. It needs nutrients from the soil. Again, this imagery from Psalm 1, the blessed person who delights in the law of the Lord and doesn't walk in the ways of the wicked. They're like a tree planted by streams of water. So if we say, I said earlier, we're not the the strong tree, right, in and of ourselves. But there is this imagery in the Psalms of us being rooted like a tree by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf doesn't wither. We are connected with God and we are connected with God's people. That's what allows us to be rooted and to be strong, right? Not in ourselves, but in in him. And I don't think this is a stretch to say that this is the emphasis of these verses because we really see the opposite reality in the following section. Again, last week we talked about the bad news, that the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't make perfect those who draw near, and the good news, that Jesus, by his single sacrifice, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Our text for today also has that bad news, good news type of feel to it. The bad news here in verses 26 through 31 is the reality for those who cut themselves off from the people of God and by so doing are actually cutting themselves off from God. As we mentioned in the past few weeks, we can think about this in terms of the covenant. Covenant blessings for obedience and covenant curses for disobedience. This topic of apostasy comes up here again in verses 26 to 31. This mirrors chapter 6 verses 4 through 8 in some ways. Uh, This is a, a big topic. We can't really cover this all uh, in detail here like we did then, but if you're interested, if if you weren't here for that, um, Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, we covered that on January 23rd. You could go back and listen if you want like a fuller explanation of apostasy and how that plays out, but I just want to mention a few things before looking here at verses 26 to 31. As as we talked about in chapter 6, those who are being addressed here are not true Christians. It is those who, like the seed in the parable of the sower, are sown on rocky ground. Those who hear the word and immediately receive it with joy, yet it has no root 
He has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the count of the word, immediately he falls away. So this is a person who is not rooted. There is a, a, a inability to endure for the long term. And the exact opposite response, this is the opposite response of true believers who do endure when tribulation and persecution come, which we're going to see in verses 32 to 34. This is, these are those who John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 would say, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it may become plain that they are not all of us. So these are the ones who, as we see in verse 26, have received the knowledge of the truth, but then have deliberately gone on sinning. Notice the contrast with those in verse 18 here. It says here, second half of verse 26, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So those who deliberately go on sinning, who reject the Lord, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, which was the opposite of what we saw in verse 18. For those who God remembers their sins no more and there is forgiveness, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins. So no longer is a sacrifice for sin needed. Here, no longer is a sacrifice for sin available because they have spurned the Lord and turned away from him. What then remains for these people? Verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Again, this is fleshed out by Jesus in the parable of the weeds in Matthew chapter 13, which comes right after the parable of the sower. We're told that the weeds are sown along with the wheat. And then the servant asks the master, he says, should we go and pull up the weeds? And the master tells him, no, do not pull up the weeds in case you also pull up the wheat in the same in the same instance, he says, wait until the harvest so that you don't accidentally pull up the weeds. Then he says, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the burning of the weeds in that parable and the fury of the fire that will consume the adversaries here is the same picture, right? It's those who have not trusted in Christ, those who have deliberately even though they've had the knowledge of the truth, they have deliberately rejected it. He then makes a comparison between the punishments of the two covenants. In verse 28, he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the punishment in the Old Testament for, for spurning God, for spurning the law, was death on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he's saying, if those people died without mercy because they disregarded God's law, how much more punishment, in verse 29 here, how much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? To do these things mentioned in verse 29 is basically to say in your heart, Jesus is not better. He is not better than all the things that the author has been telling us very clearly for the last nine and a half chapters that Jesus is better than. So this is deliberately saying Jesus is not better. 
That is what brings upon an individual what we see in verses 30 and 31. The vengeance of the Lord, repayment from the Lord. And then verse 31, we see that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You do not want that. You do not want to be on the wrong side of this equation. You do not want to be someone who falls into the hands of the living God if you are not in Christ. As we mentioned in chapter 6, this is not an empty warning. This is a warning to those who are actually weeds among the wheat. Those who have not yet repented and trusted in Jesus. And my warning to you today is do not leave this room, do not leave this building until you have gotten right with God. God is just and he will deal with you justly. You will either get the just penalty for your sin, which is death and hell, or through Jesus you can experience forgiveness and life and eternity with God. The message is clear. There are only two options. And we see from what follows here in verses 32 to 35 that our author, he believes that, our audi- that the audience is those who genuinely do trust in Jesus. He believes that those to whom he is writing are those who do genuinely trust in Jesus. Notice what he tells them to do here. This is the only imperative in this whole section, the only command. But recall, recall the former days. In other words, remember who you are and what God has done for you. For these early Christians, it was a call to remember their sufferings. Talking to Pastor Caleb about the sufferings of Christians in China right now, he reiterated that verses 32 to 34 are just part of the regular Christian experience. He didn't say like, oh, you know, pat us on the back. Life is so hard. He said, as, and as he reminds his congregation, this is just part of the regular Christian experience. This type of suffering is, is just part of it. We shouldn't be surprised by these things that we see in verses 32 and 33. Enduring a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. Pastor Caleb was detained and he was held in uh, a detention facility for seven days. And he shared how this was an opportunity for him to suffer for Christ's sake and to encourage his congregation to say, look, you guys, you can suffer for Christ in the same way. Like he's not, he's not any extra special just because he's in a, he's a pastor. This was a great opportunity also for the congregation to say, yes, we can endure. We can trust the Lord. He also shared with me about another pastor that him and I both know uh, who was just released after he'd been on house arrest for 11 years. Uh, He was locked up in, I think, um, 2008 or 2009. He was put on house arrest and was under house arrest for 11 years and just talked about how much more bold he is now to preach the gospel and to just live unashamedly uh, for Christ. So that was that was a great encouragement. And brings us into our kind of last section here. For you had compassion on those in prison. This is an opportunity. It was an opportunity for Pastor Caleb's church. Opportunity for their, our other friend in their church. Uh, to have compassion. To suffer with others who have been imprisoned. 
And then we go on to uh, the next section, the end of verse 34 here, where there are some great themes that we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 11. And these are some themes that really show that their attitude is one of, of those who recognize that they are aliens and strangers in this world, that they are just passing through. Look what it says. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The word in the original here for property and then possessions is the same word. So he's making a very clear point here that the things that you had that were taken away, you were okay with that because you had a better possession, right? You had a lasting possession, a better and abiding one. Notice that word better. We've seen that word throughout Hebrews over and over. He's saying you lost your earthly stuff but it's okay because you have a better possession. Christ and God's eternal kingdom are better than anything you could accumulate in this world. So I want us to think about this. I want to challenge myself with this. How would we respond if, if because we hold fast to our confession of our faith in Christ, if we lost all of our worldly possessions because of that, how would we respond? Is Jesus enough? Is our heavenly possession enough to carry us through this life? Now, whether or not we might ever face this type of persecution, it doesn't really matter. We still need to do some honest soul searching, and we need to question where we've truly placed our confidence. I want to close with this encouragement then from verse 35. We're told, therefore... Because of all these things we just saw, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Notice that he comes back to this topic of confidence. This whole section is bookended. Verse, um, verse 19, that we have confidence to enter and to draw near. Now here in verse 35, we are told not to throw away our confidence. In other words, do not lose heart. Do not throw in the towel when life gets hard. Why? Because your confidence is in Christ, and that confidence has a great reward. I think there's something interesting, something else interesting that our author may be doing here. The word for reward is the same, has the same root word as the word in verse 30 where it says, I will repay. So this idea of God is going to repay, right? Vengeance is his. He will, he will take out, he will, he will punish those who are not in Christ. There will be a repayment. But then there's this opposite picture here in verse 35 is that your trust in Christ has a great reward, okay? You will not get the repayment that you deserve for your sins because Christ was punished on your behalf. Instead, you will get the reward that you do not deserve. So I think there's a very clear contrast going on here. So you are going to get one or the other. And the question for us is where is our confidence? If our confidence is in ourselves, if we think we can live for our own agenda, if we think we can be right with God by our own works, then we will get the repayment and the vengeance of God. Again, we do not want that. You do not want that. 
But if we live for Christ, if our confidence is in Christ and what he has done, if we hold fast and do not throw away our confidence, we will get the reward. We will get everything that God has promised for us. So are we living for that reward? Are we living for the reward that comes from the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ and life eternal in his presence? Hold on to that confidence. Keep pressing on and do not throw away that confidence. Let us pray. Father, after so much instruction here in Hebrews over these last several chapters, after so many reminders of of who Jesus is and what he has done and how he is better, as we are now confronted with these challenges, with these exhortations of how we are to live, how we are to approach you, how we are to draw near with confidence, how we are to encourage our our brothers and sisters, how are we going to hold on to our confidence? God, this can feel completely overwhelming. It can feel that we don't have the strength. We don't have the endurance. And the truth is, in and of ourselves, we don't. Our confidence is in you. Our confidence is in what Christ has done for us. And God, may we be a people who live that out. Who live in light of, of that hope and that reality. So God, thank you for the confidence that we can have in you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes to the church in Corinth regarding the Lord's Supper. And I think there are some great parallels here uh, to what we just saw, to the encouragements that we saw to, to continue gathering together, to continue pressing on. Paul writes, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Again, there's this parallel to to Hebrews 10 there. There are some who are of them and some who are not, okay? This will be kind of this picture of of this division. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So notice again, here's kind of this rebuke, right? Now he's going to come with the good news. For I received from the Lord Jesus what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of of, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat and drink of the cup. So eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So again, there's a clear reminder here in these words from Paul that we are to examine ourselves before we come to this table. You need to examine yourself this morning. Are you in Christ? If you are someone who has trusted in Christ, who says, yes, my confidence is in Jesus and in him alone. My salvation comes from him, not from anything that I can bring with my own hands. Then you are welcome to come to this table. We ask that you would be someone who has been baptized, who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church. Uh, if you are not yet there, if, that's, if you have not yet trusted in Christ, then we would ask that you would refrain uh, from coming to the table. We would love to talk to you more about what it means uh, to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus.